You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. O Spirit, lift our eyes to Jesus. Help us see him in your word, we pray tonight, for his glory, for his sake, and for our own good, and for our own hope. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Tonight is a torch night, so if you're a fourth or sixth grader, I want to go talk about the parable from last week with Patrick and Gail. You can head on out and do that with them. It's going to be with you again this week. It's crazy. It's just been seven days since we were all in this building together. It was a fast week for me, but it's good to be back in First Timothy. And just a heads up, I know this is pretty herky-jerky, but we'll have two weeks back here in this book uh, before Advent begins. And if you have not been with us in years prior, the Advent UFO will return, which is always good. Uh, you'll just have to see it. Take my word for it until then. Uh, so we'll take another break, a four-week break from First Timothy before we get back into that, into it in January. Uh, but I can't wait to start singing some Christmas hymns with you all. It's, this is the best. But First Timothy now. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and find that. Feel free to use one of the Bibles in front of you in the pew. Uh, the translation there will be just a little bit different than what I'm preaching from. But if you don't have a Bible, don't own one, just grab one of the black ones on the table right here. We'd love for you to have that and to be able to read it throughout the week. Uh, First Timothy is about halfway through the New Testament. If you need to use the table of contents at the front of the Bible to find it, feel free to do that. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his young pastor, protege, Timothy. Paul and Timothy had spent a couple of years together in the city of Ephesus in Turkey, uh, and they had seen many Jews and non-Jews become Christians in their time there. They became a church. They helped start this church. The church had elders and deacons and weekly meetings and the whole bit. Uh, It was a mature church by the time they left it, but by the time they returned in Acts 20, Paul had become really concerned with some of the pastor elders that he found in the church there. And he says this, he's addressing them, and in fact the whole church, he says, I know that after my departure, this is in Acts 20, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So later, when Paul hears that these things have actually happened, that there is false teaching running rampant through the church in Ephesus, he leaves Timothy there to put things in order and to stop the crazy. This letter is Paul's instruction to Timothy, his son in the faith, and what he wants him to do 
and how he wants it to do it, how he wants him to do it. And what you heard Jason read is Paul finally picking up from a half chapter digression on just the wonder and beauty of the gospel. Verses 18 through 20 pick right back up from what he was saying in verses 1 through 7. In fact, there are a lot of similarities in those paragraphs. In verse 18, he calls Timothy his child, just like he did in verse 2. He reemphasizes faith and a good conscience in verse 19, like he did in verse 5. And he explicitly names two of the false teachers, Hymenaeus and Alexander, where he was perhaps just calling them certain persons, like he did in verses 3 and 6. So it's like he came down off of this whirlwind of praise, this He's just swept up in worship of God in verse 17. And then he like, he's sitting at his desk as he's writing this letter. And he like exhales and is like, now where was I? Ah, oh, yes. Uh, verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. And the three verses that follow are an encouragement for perseverance for Timothy. In contrast to the lack of perseverance that he sees from others. And this is exactly how we'll look at this chapter tonight. In just two sections. The perseverance of Timothy and the shipwreck of others. So the perseverance of Timothy. He says in verse 18, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy. What charge? My child, in accordance with the prophecy, prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So Paul knows that anyone who is surrounded by false teaching and opposition might be tempted to give in, give up. But perhaps he knows specifically that Timothy might be tempted toward folding, towards giving up, towards being trampled on. He'll later encourage him to not let anyone look down on him because he is young. And in many of the same kind of encouragements in 2 Timothy, he tells him, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control with an implied, so since you have this spirit of power, do what needs to be done, Timothy. So here in this, these verses, Paul is going to give Timothy a couple of thoughts on how he is to go about his continued work in Ephesus. He's going to give him the, the why and the what for and the how of his perseverance. Why should Timothy persevere? What for or for what purpose? And how is he going to be able to keep going? How will he make it to the end? So first of all, this why, why should he persevere? This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Timothy should keep at it in teaching right doctrine, in stopping wrong doctrine, because God has given him a job to do. We don't know exactly what these prophecies are or were, but here's a brief sketch of what we know of Timothy up until this point from Acts and from 1 Timothy and from 2 Timothy. We know that when Paul arrived at Timothy's hometown of Lystra, Timothy already had a well-known good reputation. He was well-spoken of before Paul ever met him. We can maybe assume that the gift that Paul is talking about uh, is teaching and preaching. Because when Paul tells him in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid hands on you, he tells him that right in the middle of encouraging him to teach and grow in this gift of teaching. So Paul is encouraging Timothy to keep going in his teaching. Because he's, why? Because God has given him a job by a word of prophetic word. Now, what does this mean for us? Does it mean that you should only persevere in a job if someone has come to you and laid their hands on you and said, I have a word from the Lord, you should continue on in your job at the hospital. And if you don't have that word, then maybe you should all just quit. I don't think so. 
I actually heard a guy at a church planning conference five or six years ago say that if you haven't had like this indelible, unforgettable moment from God where you are absolutely 100% sure that God has you called not just to pastoral ministry, but to pastor this church, that if you don't have a moment like that, then when it gets really difficult, you're just going to quit. Was that true? Is it, is it true uh, that if you are a doctor or an accountant or a teacher or a parent that you must have this prophetic word from the Lord to persevere? I don't think so. Sometimes I've heard of people who have had dreams or visions or someone comes to them with an impression that God has given them or something that stuck with them. But I don't think that we should expect something like that for all of us and for all of our jobs. And the way that we use the word calling is perhaps not very similar to the way that the Bible talks about and thinks about where we are. It's not necessarily a bad thing that we think of our jobs as callings can be very helpful, that God has actually summoned you there to do good work, uh, to do good work in bringing God glory and helping uh, preserve and cultivate order in the world and advertising or in building things or in styling someone's hair. This is good work for God's glory. But to sit around and wait for a couple of years perhaps uh, thinking about taking a job until you hear an audible voice from the Lord might not be, there's not much precedent for that in the Bible. To maybe see a girl's name in the clouds before you consider asking her out on a date. Uh, probably not wise. Uh, you might just be a coward. Uh, to, to languish in two or three years of undergraduate studies before you declare a major because you're just waiting for God to speak. Well, I don't, I don't know that there's much precedent for that. There certainly is sometimes in the Bible where God comes, intervenes, and tells people what to do. But this is maybe like perhaps once in every generation, usually less frequent than that. There are the hundreds of thousands, millions of other people who don't hear from God in this kind of way. So to sit around and wait for God to speak is perhaps neglecting the gifts that he's already given. First, that of the Bible, for, and that of just wisdom that he builds and cultivates in his people, counsel from other godly Christians, and just plain old decision-making. Our desires can often be wrong, and that's why in making decisions we should seek the advice of others. We should even perhaps be skeptical of our own motives. But you want to know why I know that Marcy was the one that God has prepared for me from eternity past. Not because I had a dream or I got some letter from a missionary in Taiwan who said, I have this name in my head, Marcy. Uh, well, no, I just, I, we liked each other. Uh, I asked some people what they thought. I prayed a lot about it. And then 12 years ago today, uh, we made some covenant promises to each other. And yeah, hey, yeah, great, yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, and that's how I know that, that she's the one. For what it's worth, I didn't have a prophetic word from God that we should plant this church in Albuquerque. I really like Albuquerque, and a lot of folks affirmed that our city really needed more churches planted talked to a lot of pastors, both at our sending church and around the, the country, and they said, yeah, you should do that. And I was like, all right, we should do that. <laughs> uh, now, does that minimize or invalidate a sense of calling that I have for this church? No. And does it mean that I'm going to quit when it gets hard and go sell insurance? I don't think so. It's already been difficult for two years. It might get more difficult, but 
I love this church. And that doesn't mean that I haven't, since I haven't seen or heard or had uh, someone say a word from the Lord, Christ Church in Albuquerque, uh, that I want to quit. Nevertheless, though, while we shouldn't necessarily expect a prophetic word from God in our decision making or in our jobs, Timothy evidently did have one. Which makes it a whole lot even more easier, right, for him. For Paul to remind him that this isn't just a game for him. This isn't just a hobby for him. But that God himself has given him this job. So it's, he's writing what he's writing to kind of come at him like Mufasa, saying, Simba, remember who you are. This is who you are, and God has put you there for a purpose. So that's the why. But what for? What does God? He has him there that's why, but for what? To do what? Well, he's to wage the good warfare, or like he will say later in the letter, to fight the good fight. Paul hasn't left Timothy there to cultivate a thriving Ephesian chapter of the Rotary Club, or some social order, some social club where everybody can get together and have some sense of community or something. That's not what he has left him there to do. That might be a benefit of what he has left him there to do, but that's not the ultimate purpose. He has put him there to be on the front lines of the war. Now perhaps some of us can have an unhealthy view of the spiritual war world or the spiritual warfare that is going on in this world, so that if you get a flat tire, it was Satan. Or that if you sin, uh, the devil made me do it. Or some other way that I might excuse myself from my own sin and rebellion. But I think most of us probably lean to unhealthily on the other side of the spectrum. In that, just assuming that the spiritual world or a great unseen conflict isn't really a thing. And just assuming that the battle we fight as Christians is mostly a battle of logic or mostly a battle of just forming better habits. If we can show people, if we can convince ourselves that giving our lives to Jesus is not only reasonable, but actually beneficial, then great. But this is ignoring so much of what the Bible has to say about what is actually going on. We'd be ignoring what Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians 6, that we do not battle against flesh or blood or logic or bad habits, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Whoa. Like, we don't really, as 21st century Americans have much of a category for that. I think that before someone is a Christian, he or she actually belongs to, Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air. This doesn't mean that all people who aren't Christians are active Satan worshipers, that they are going around practicing the occult and like sacrificing goats on Friday nights or something. But it does mean that God has allowed the dark spiritual powers of the world to blind people's vision of him. Persuading people, persuading us in all kinds of subtle and sneaky ways that we don't need God. That there are things in the world that are better than Jesus. And that is a spiritual war that is going on in this world. But in a miraculous display of his power, the spirit of God shows himself to be stronger, to be more powerful than the spirit of this world. And he breaks in, bringing life and bringing actual holiness where there was once only death, only blindness, 
and only sin. This is incredible. And so what we do here every Sunday, what we do every time we pray in our, silently in our heads or around our dinner tables is to declare war. To declare war on the darkness around us. Declaring to the powers, declaring to the world, declaring to our mortally wounded flesh within us that the Lamb is victorious. That we belong to him. Our great shepherd, our great general, our great warrior king. He has fought the battle and won. And then when we leave this place, singing after singing these war songs, after renewing our battle cries, coming to the table, when we leave this place, go out to the places of darkness, we continue to fight this good warfare. This doesn't mean that we like hate the world around us, that we hate or we're against the world no any more than I like hate or am against my unconverted children. But even if, as I was writing this on Friday morning, I was convicted about them. How many times do I just become convinced that if I can read the Bible enough with them, if I can make sure that they're at church on Sundays and or around other Christians, if I can keep putting Jesus around them and show the logic of Jesus to them, that they'll just automatically become Christians. And this is not a biblical understanding of what God does in salvation. It's not a biblical understanding of the self and of salvation. And yet I am tempted to think that my battle that I am fighting is a battle of logic instead of more regularly, fervently, and desperately asking God to bring life in my kids, to save them by a miraculous display of power. And the same with our city. The same with our workplaces or the folks that we as GCs are moving towards and serving in the city. The same with your neighborhood or our classmates who all need God to miraculously show himself in a display of power to bring life and to give them vision to see. This is especially true for our workers who are out on the front lines in places of utter darkness where the name of Jesus is not even known. You walk out these halls every Sunday. I think we can become tempted to just, we've seen these three families on these three canvases uh, and we just kind of walk by them. Yeah, we know them. We know that they're there, but we're kind of, they are doing, they are fighting and waging the good war through loving people, serving them and sharing the gospel of Christ with them. So let's pray that, let's pray that God would continue to work through them, that people would actually be coming to life through their word and their ministry. Let's pray that God would raise more of us up in this body to send to the places where God's glory through Christ is not yet known. Wage the good warfare. Fight the good fight. Paul did not want Timothy to slip into blind and naive thinking that the enemy will stop at nothing to stop the greatness of Jesus, the glory of the cross, to keep it minimized, ignored, or just entirely forgotten. So stay there in Ephesus, Timothy. Persevere. Don't give up. It's important that you teach sound doctrine of God and stop the bad teaching. Why? Because God has given a word that this is what he wants from Timothy, to teach. But what for? Because there is a great unseen spiritual conflict that God intends Timothy to engage in and to push back against. But how? 
How will he persevere? How will he not give up or quit? By holding faith and a good conscience. Again, these are two things that we've already thought through from earlier in chapter one, but evidently so important that Paul had to say it again. Faith and a good conscience. He can't just be talking about any faith in anything, but as we'll see in a minute, the faith, as Jude says, that was once and for all delivered to the saints. And as Paul says in Ephesians 2, was built upon the word of the prophets and the apostles. The faith, the faith in Christ and what it means. Now, not to belabor the point, but doctrine matters. There is such thing as the faith. And if that's true, then there is such thing as not the faith. Even like what we understand, what we believe about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, about the Bible, about the church, about all things, about sin and humanity, all of this matters and has massive implications. Even saying something like, man, you you guys get so overly concerned in doctrine. I just want to love Jesus. That is a very, very deep doctrinal statement that this person has just made. I just want to love like Jesus, or I just want to love Jesus. Well, who is Jesus? What has he done? What difference does Jesus being alive make? What what does it mean to love like Jesus? What are the implications? What are the millions of implications that all of this means for your life, for your city, for the world around you? Everyone must have answers to these questions, and they are enormously important, both for the continued display of the glory of the gospel through his people, but also these answers are very, very, very important for the preservation and perseverance of his people. So faith, holding faith, it's an outward expression of what someone says that they believe. Because seriously, if you want to know what I believe, probably don't necessarily listen to my words. They're important, but if you really want to know what I believe, watch my life. That's true for all of us. Saying that you have faith and that you trust and love Jesus actually doesn't mean anything if you actually don't trust and love Jesus. Doctrine matters, belief matters, but I'm afraid many of us think that if we just have the right thoughts about Jesus then that's what makes us a Christian. If we think the right things about Jesus, if we have the right doctrine, remember, doctrine matters, but it's not all that matters. If we have the right doctrine of Jesus, some of us, I think, myself included, can become tempted toward thinking that this is what makes me a Christian. Or if we've had what I've heard one pastor call a password moment. If we've had a password moment where we said the right words at some point in our life, that we get to enter into the secret door. The Christian life and faith is not about a password. Paul knows that that kind of faith is no faith at all. And that kind of faith will be the end of Timothy. It may not come immediately, but he will not be able to love the church. He'll not be able to lead the church. He'll not be able to love God or treasure Christ, be utterly transformed by him until he has given him his entire life. And actually, an an actual faith that trusts God, takes him at his promises, follows him in obedience, no matter the cost. So if faith is an outward guardrail for perseverance, keeping the faith, 
following God in obedience is an outward guardrail for Timothy in his perseverance. Then the second part, a good conscience is an inward guardrail. Being aware of with increasing sensitivity the ways in which our thoughts, the ways in which our actions, our motives are not honoring to God or loving our neighbor. Again, I want to point your attention. There's a book that we have on the bookshelf. Somebody's checked it out, which is wonderful. Uh, there's a book by Andy Nacelli called The Conscience, uh, and you should keep an eye on that every Sunday for when it gets returned. And there's even a children's book equivalent by Andy Nacelli called That Little Voice in Your Head. Uh, and I'll put this on the bookshelf after the service, and some lucky family uh, can stampede up there the, the quickest and check this one out. It is great. But one commentator says this about how faith and a good conscience go together. Obviously, false doctrine leads to moral failure. Wrong views of God's word leads inevitably to wrong practices. But the reverse is also true. A bad conscience often leads to bad doctrine. Can we all agree with this in just observing our own lives, perhaps in a past time in our life, or perhaps even now? I began making small, little compromises here and there. I know that these aren't right, but I make a compromise here and there, and then two years later, three years later, this small compromise has now become this much larger compromise. I ignored my conscience because I want to do what I want to do. And then I've convinced myself that two or three years down the road, God probably doesn't care as much as I thought he did back here. Or two or three or ten years down the road, well, the Bible's not really as clear as what I thought it was plainly clear about those days when I was cultivating a good conscience. Listen to the Spirit, Timothy, when he is telling you the things that you shouldn't do, listen. Walk in a way that is honorable to the Lord. Understand and know God's word, Timothy. Listen to the wise and mature Christians around you. Throw yourself on God's promises. Treasure Jesus above all else and follow him in faith, outwardly and inwardly with a good conscience so that I might be able to say, of course, I am never fully without sin, but hallelujah, all my ways are known to you. Of course, I need the Lord Jesus to make me right, but I have loved him about as best as I could this week. Help me love him more next week, Lord Jesus, or the Holy Spirit, but help me, and I'm trying. There's a, there's a sense in which effort comes from understanding the free gospel of grace, that I want to know God more and more, deepening myself, straining forward, as Paul says in Philippians. This is how Timothy will persevere. This is how we will persevere. We don't stumble into holiness. We don't stumble into knowing God. We don't stumble into perseverance. We strain forward with faith and a good conscience. So this is the perseverance of Timothy. But after encouraging Timothy and what he hopes for him, he turns around and compares Timothy with the shipwreck of others. The shipwreck of others. Second half of verse 19. By rejecting this, what is this? The, the faith and good conscience. Some have made shipwreck of their faith. 
among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may not learn, or that they may learn not to blaspheme. Okay, that sounds really scary. We'll get to the scary part. But first of all, a more literal translation of this is not their faith, but the faith. They have made shipwreck of the faith. The doctrine of God has run aground so much through the teaching of these men that in 2 Timothy, Paul says Hymenaeus and Philetus, another dude, Hymenaeus is apparently still around by the time he writes 2 Timothy, they have swerved from the truth, Paul says, and are upsetting others. It's not just that they have hit an iceberg, Hymenaeus and Alexander, and they've shipwrecked and they're beginning to sink. Their ship has now become a thing that other people are running aground on. They're causing shipwreck of the faith. It's got to stop. Their faith, the faith is becoming more and more shipwrecked through the teaching and influence of these men. And while Paul, what, what Paul says he's done sounds really, really serious and scary, handing them over to Satan. And it is. It's very serious and scary. I think all that he is saying is that he has removed them not only from leadership within the Ephesian church, but from the church altogether. Remember, before someone becomes a Christian, he or she belongs to Satan, the prince of the power of the air. A person before they are a Christian are in bondage to sin. They are blind to God. They are constantly in the worship of the self, but the Holy Spirit overcomes, overwhelms, and miraculously brings life. But God doesn't just save, doesn't just bring life to individuals. He saves a people for himself, and he has designed and ordered the structure of the church for our mutual good and for one another, for the preservation of the gospel. And with the image that we most often use around here, he has given local churches to act and function as embassies. Just like if I were in Paris and I lost my passport, I wouldn't be able to just show up at the airport and say, I know, customs agent, I don't have my passport, but you just got to trust me. I'm an American. I mean, I look like an American, right? Toby, Lydia, you're about to go to England in a month. You can't just, do, you can't show up at the airport without your English passport. You have to have the passport. So if you lost your passport, what would you do? If you're in Paris, you'd go to your local embassy to vouch for you, to affirm who you are, to support you in getting home to America, to your home nation. So the local church functions in much of the same way. It vouches for, it affirms, it supports individual Christians as individual Christians also support and affirm them, one another. And this is what church membership is. This is what 18 folks last week said that they wanted for themselves and what they wanted to give to others. Just like you wouldn't feel comfortable walking around as an isolated American in a European or an African city without a passport, with no passport, no embassy to vouch for you, no Christian ought to feel comfortable, isolated, detached on his or her own. And so this is what Paul is doing here with the unique authority that Jesus has given him as an apostle. He has gone through the expedited process of church discipline of excommunication with Hymenaeus and Alexander. If this was Paris, he is saying, yeah, I know, 
Himenaeus and Alexander, they looked like they were Americans. They talked like Americans. They wore American clothes. But it's very clear to all of us now that they aren't. The Ephesian church is an embassy for the kingdom of heaven. And these two guys are not citizens of the heavenly country that they said that they belong to. And so the Ephesian church shouldn't lie to them. The Ephesian church shouldn't lie to the world that they are Christians. Now, one person, one pastor, uh, doesn't get to do what Paul just did any longer. The office of apostle closed with the death of the last apostle, John. But we go through this exact same process together with our membership, as Jesus told us to do in Matthew 18. If a person's life outwardly, blatantly, ongoingly, unrepentantly, after much, much long time of pleading and praying with them, if their life does not align with their supposed faith in Christ, then Jesus tells us that we can no longer affirm their citizenship in heaven. Local churches don't make Christians, but they do affirm them. Lord, have mercy that we may never have to go through the full process that Paul does here with Hymenaeus and Alexander of removing them from the church. Help us, Lord. Give us faith and good consciences together. But Paul is simply saying that Hymenaeus and Alexander belong to the domain of Satan and of the world. He is handing them back over to the world, uh, to the domain that their lives and their doctrines say that they want to belong to. But if anyone knows that you can survive a shipwreck, who is it? It's Paul. He's survived at least three of them up until this point. Literal shipwrecks in the Mediterranean Sea. And it's also worth mentioning that the blatant and unrepentant sin of blasphemy that Paul names here is also the list of sins that he named for himself in verse 13 of chapter 1. So Paul is not just coming down and being like, hey, I get to be an apostle and just be, crack my whip and just make everybody be really afraid of me or something. No, just as Paul was able to swim to safety after literal shipwrecks and just as he was confronted by the risen Jesus, being confronted by him, he understood who he was and understood who he was in light of Jesus. Just as his life was transformed and he no longer blasphemed Jesus' name but now lived for Jesus' name, Paul says that he hands them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Hope was not lost for them. Martin Luther says that this process of church discipline has medicinal purposes. It is intended not to harm, but to heal. Or as one commentator writes, at this point, Paul hopes that Hymenaeus and Alexander may yet make it back to port. For some, it takes being cast off into the sea to realize the advantages on board the ship. And so this has implications for us all. If you're not a Christian, friend, consider Jesus. You, like all of us, have lived your life at best in naive blindness to his presence, to his goodness, or at worst, active opposition to his authority in your life. And yet, being the creator of the universe, who spoke the universe into existence, he can speak life into you as well. He's a kind and compassionate shepherd who can interrupt the meandering 
nowhereness of just the worshiping of self that we are all prone towards. He will not immediately fix all your problems, but he will give meaning and hope through your problems as a good shepherd. Jesus rose from the dead after dying on the cross for your sin. What are the implications of that that you need to do business with tonight? If you are a Christian, but are not a member of a church, be it this one or another wonderful gospel-preaching church, Jesus did not come to just save you as an individual, but he came to save a people. He came to save not individual bricks that are scattered and disjointed, but he came to save, as Peter says in 1 Peter, he came to save bricks that can be stacked up and made into something useful, namely to be made up into the temple of God, where the presence of God lives, dwells. Just like we sang at the, in, about in our call to worship song at the beginning of our service, I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. God came to build a building, not a building, but a building, all of us together, local churches all over the world that support, that hold up, that adorn, that protect the beauty of the gospel. We need each other. We need a local embassy. We'll get a sign-up page on the website for our next membership class in the spring here shortly, but would you begin considering what membership might mean for your life? If everything that I just said sounds really foreign and weird and you're like, hey, the word membership doesn't show up in the Bible, I'll be like, yeah, you're right. Let's talk about it. (laughs) Uh, But we need each other. Begin considering what membership would mean for you and for us. If you are a Christian, if you're a member or not a member, the example of Hymenaeus and Alexander ought to come as a warning for us as well. Ought to cause us to consider, as Paul will tell Timothy later in this letter, to keep close watch on your life and doctrine. That we are not necessarily above where Hymenaeus and Alexander were. My guess is, when they first professed faith in Christ, they didn't think three or four, we don't know how long it was, three or four or five or six years later that they would be teaching something so contrary to the gospel of grace. But small steps away from the Lord, small compromises in violating their conscience, and they end up here. This ought to become or come as a warning to us all. So wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Persevere. We won't drift into holiness. We will not listlessly drift into heaven. Grow in your understanding of the faith, of sound doctrine. Throw yourself into the life of this church or another one. Read the Bible. Pray. Read the Bible and pray more. Read good books. Grow in cultivating the conscience. This sounds cliche, but I read this week, when I've spent time in the word and prayer, my day can only be so bad. When I haven't, my day can only be so good. I think that's right. Our days can only be so bad when we are immersing ourselves in the Bible and we are immersing ourselves with the Lord in prayer. And when we're not, they can only be so good. I think there's a ceiling, there's a limit to our joy in the Lord when we are not spending time with him. 
All of these things are ways in which God moves us along one step further as a flock of sheep following our shepherd together in perseverance that we might move from thinking. Whereas when, before we have come to Christ, we might be thinking, I am everything. And then we perhaps get a little bit further down the road to me thinking that I'm something. And then when we get confronted with who God is and who I am in front of Christ, I am floored by him and I get to a place where I think, I'm nothing. Whereas then God gets us to a place where we can say together and individually say, I'm Christ's. That I belong to him and I am not, no longer nothing, but I am his. And I can move forward with faith and a good conscience, waging the good warfare for his glory and for our own good. Let's ask that this would be true of us. Our Father, we pray. We pray for mercy amongst us as a church. Help us to keep growing in our knowledge of you, of our love for you. Help us to keep growing further down in humility, but help us to grow further up in our love of you because we can say with confidence that we belong to you, our Father, God, help us to grow. Help us to cultivate and be more sensitive to a growing conscience, both individually and corporately together as a community of Christ. Help us to love the world around us. Help us to love you for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.